nowhere in the Christian or the Jewish scriptures is the snake in Genesis 3 identified as Satan. And I was like, that can't be true because of course that's literally what I've heard my entire life. Yeah. But I was like, this guy, this guy had the brass to put it in print. Mm. <laughs> like he's going to be pretty sure of himself. <laughs> so it kind of, it, it kind of like messed me up. You know, I was like, well, wait a second, doesn't it? And of course I read Genesis three and it sure doesn't. Mm. And so then I was like, well, wait, wait, like where did that idea come from? If, if it's not in the text, and, and so that sent me off on this whole long trajectory of trying to figure out, well, where is the story in the Bible anyway, that he rebelled against God and got kicked out of heaven and all that kind of stuff, you know, and, and then if, if that's not in there, what is actually? Yeah. Hey there, you. I'm glad you're here. This is the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I am Seth. It's almost Halloween. It is five or six days from now, and I don't know about you, but I'm a little bit bummed. Not that I can't dress up as something because I never do that, nor that my children cannot dress up as something because honestly, it's slightly annoying after run around. I'm really sad about just the lack of community, getting out of the house, seeing and meeting neighbors, and just being goofy for an evening. That makes me kind of sad. But all is not lost. We are here together, even remotely. And I've got a great conversation for you. I think it's great, but I know that I'm biased. Every week I ask, and every week many of you deliver. So I wanted to say thank you to new and or edited patrons of the show. So thank you to Elizabeth Moore and to Glenn Siepert. People like you make this thing happen. And that is not an overstatement. I know that money is important and tight and times are crazy, and I value that. So thank you. I wanted to say that before I said anything else. And now let's make this thing happen. So today, J.R. Foresteros is the guest. I was first introduced to J.R. electronically, I guess, on a different podcast called Imaginary Worlds. That show is about the worlds that we create and how we suspend our disbelief. And it really is an amazing podcast. It's pretty short. It's worth your while. It's not religious, but... JR was brought on not long ago as the idea and the concept of villainry in the world and that type of stuff. And it made me dig down a rabbit hole of JR. And then I realized the guy's got 97 podcasts and that's an exaggeration, but it feels that way. And he wrote, he wrote a book called Empathy for the Devil. And I'm going to pause. I'm going to say that again. Empathy for the Devil. The title alone just struck me. So I bought it. I read it, I sat with it, and I struggled with parts of it, and I decided to email JR, and he said, sure, let's do the thing. So we cover a lot of ground here. We talk about Halloween, we talk about the church, we talk about evangelicalism, we talk about comics, and Black Panther, and the Satan, and Delilah, and King Herod. I mean, we cover a lot of ground, and I loved this conversation. I think you will too. Enough of me. Let's roll the tape. Hey, 
Jera Forsteros, welcome to the show. Internationally known. It is what it is. I'm glad that you made time this evening. Come Seth, on. thank you so much. This is really exciting. And I will say, I've stalked you on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and I don't know how to use Instagram. And I've said that often, and I mean it every time. Like, I post a picture, and then I don't know what to do after that, because there's little, very little interaction with... That's true. Yeah, with, I think you got it, mostly. Um, well, I get tagged in, like, stories, and then eight days later, I'll see it, and I'm like, I don't... I don't know what that means. Like I don't, and for, I just found out the other day. I think my sister told me she's like they delete after twenty four hours. I was like, it's true. Yeah. What's the What's the point? Like, why would I care? Oh, whatever. It's just I don't understand it. Um, but your pun game is stronger than mine, and I feel threatened oh. by this. Goodness, I feel. Thank you. I, I, yeah, I feel threatened. Full credit goes to my wife. She is the queen of puns, and so it, it is. It's purely by osmosis. That is. Uh, that is the theology of covenant in action. <laughs> you're, you're equally yoked. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Nothing delight like there. There are a few things that bring me as much joy in my life as watching my wife crack herself up with a pun <laughs> because she'll lose control and like laugh at herself laughing. And it just turns into the cycle that sometimes has gone on for like 10 minutes. Has she even said it out loud or is she just still internally monologuing this? Oh, no, she'll say it out loud and then like be so <laughs> pleased with herself. And then just, yeah, it's it's truly a delight. And then, of course, I start laughing at her and then she laughs at me, laughing at her, laughing at herself, <laughs> laughing at her, you know, and it just becomes this chain where she ends up gasping for breath and crying and it's, <laughs> that it's, is it's great a, it's a deeply joyful experience that is a fruit of the spirit because my wife and i she does not share my love for puns um <laughs> but my children do and sometimes my middle child will work on them you can tell she's been working on them at school and sometimes yes. they land other times they don't land but i appreciate the effort because it does take that's, practice you got to have mastery of of the words you got to know how to right. use them yeah yeah so i appreciate her effort and her honing her craft because in 20 <laughs> years really, yeah 20 years it's going to pay off she it's, and her dad text puns back and forth like that's their <laughs> love language and it's it's wonderful <laughs> um so tell us a bit about you most of the show people listening on the show may or may not know about you and if they don't again hit pause go to the show notes because i made it easy for everyone that's lazy like i am and um and yeah what what would what makes you you like what's the yeah, so what are the things Quick facts. Uh, I'm a pastor in Dallas, Texas. Mm. Uh, I'm not a native Texan, but mm. I I moved here fully intending not to drink the Kool-Aid, and then I drank it. Like, I keep drinking it. Texas is great. <laughs> Believe all the rumors. Uh, I get it. I, I understand I'm one of those terrible Texans now, and I'm unashamedly positive about it. So, um my church is a is a Church of the Nazarene, uh, which actually probably doesn't mean anything to a lot of people. And actually, if you went to 10 other Nazarene churches and they came to mind, you'd go, are you sure this is a Nazarene church? But we are, you know, <laughs> theologically or Wesleyan holiness. Uh, I, uh, my wife is a roller derby girl. So she, when, you know, when we're not in a global pandemic, she skates for Assassination City Roller Derby. Mm. And I stepped in to fill an announcer spot. So again, when we're not in a global pandemic, about once a month, I announce roller derby on Saturday night and then preach on Sunday morning, uh, which is very fun. Huh. <laughs> um, I have a book called Empathy for the Devil, which I think we're going to be talking about a little bit tonight that I wrote with uh, InterVarsity Press. And then I also host a couple of podcasts. Uh, I love horror movies. So this is like my time of the year. You know, October is, is mm -hmm. great. Uh, and I've actually, during the pandemic, I've started running Dungeons and Dragons campaigns again. That's how I'm hmm. keeping myself occupied in my free time. So. Where That's a lot of free time. Like, Where does that come from? Like I, just running one podcast sucks up yeah. all of my time. 
Like how does so, how is that a thing? So fascinating podcast. We actually are uh, we are fortunate to have an audio producer. So we record our files and send them to him. And that actually happened because a long long time ago, he messaged us and said, "Hey, you guys have great content, and your audio makes me want to like poke my eardrums out. So if you send me your files, I will edit them for you." And we were like, "Great," because we have no idea what we're doing, obviously. Uh, so that one actually, I mean, we are able to do so much of that because we we have a good rhythm where we take some breaks. You know, we'll do about fifteen or twenty episodes and then take take a couple months off and pl- kind of plan what we're doing next. And uh, we've we've started to get a lot more strategic about what we're doing and what guests we bring on and things like that. And mm-hmm. that's helped us to kind of have a little bit more solid of a format. And there are four co-hosts, so if one of us isn't able to make it one week, it's not that big of a deal. You know, we could still have several people in there um i only one time have i been left by myself <laughs> to interview a guest and it was actually great it was uh the director of the documentary hail satan i don't know if you've heard that it has a question mark at the end of it no um incredible incredible documentary i really think any any christ follower should watch it uh, i think it's on hulu right now streaming uh it's a documentary about the satanic temple which is an official satanic organization and the documentary is sort of interrogating whether they are a religion or a political movement, or if there is a meaningful difference between those two things. We might come back to that. Cause now also Great. this, that's the second time in 15 minutes that you brought up Hulu. So this podcast brought to you by Hulu. <laughs> brought to us, but yeah. Hulu <laughs> Which, big fans love to be a sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> Which, um, <laughs> yeah. So, so honestly, that's a big part of it, right? Is we, we just, we, we try to do a lot of planning behind the scenes so that we can sit down, record our show. Then we have a, a, a fantastic team who does a lot of our scheduling and producing and that kind of stuff. Mm. That so, would be amazing. Yeah. I've well, often do a worse job and you might get some help. That was our, that was our ticket to the top. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am just now finally leeching control to other people to help me with the transcripts. I have no idea if you're aware or not, but I have been transcribing every That's amazing. single. I, yeah, so see, we don't do that. I, well, I only did it because someone asked for it. Someone on Facebook said something about something and that it was recommended that they, but they struggled with hearing. And right. would I consider uh, transcribing it to which, you know, I was absolutely like, sure. Of course. Like, yeah. Of course. What? And then after I hit go, I was like, that was 88. You, you, you did 88. You just in the middle of all of them. And it was really awkward. That would be like just preaching like half of a sermon one right. Sunday every three years. And you're, yeah. you're done. We're and not, no yeah. more discussions. So then I realized you were an idiot, but I started. Yeah. So I've, that's yeah. amazing commitment. I averaged them out. I have no idea how many words it actually is, but, um, an hour is roughly 8,612 words, give or take. And at 157 episodes that have been released, um, it's like 1.8 million words. Uh, luckily though, AI is much better than it used to be. So they do some of the heavy lifting, but words like Philippians or Beelzebub, or they, they don't, they don't show up. Is that the challenge for this episode to say as many words as possible? God, I hope not. <laughs> God, God, I, I will How does it do with things like highfalutin. Uh, it, it would, it would, it would probably say high, high fluting. Like it's close. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But no, I spoke with a couple like the, the Eastern, like we talk about Eastern church and um, spoke with, um, Vince Bantu, and he was talking about all these Syriac churches, and it was, oh my gosh, <laughs> it was so, it took, it didn't help that it was like a two-hour conversation, and it probably took five days to get that thing done, um, because again, the way that I am, I'm like, you know, I'm going to get this right, 
I link. So I assume everyone will be as equally like, I don't know what that word means. So I hit a link so you can click on it and go, hey, hit pause because you're not listening anyway. So you may as well have some context because I think that's how we should read the Bible. So maybe we should approach everything that way. But it's so much freaking work. I need I need your guy's number is what I'm saying. And maybe he wants to do two podcasts. I think the silver lining of this conversation is that in the inevitable AI takeover, you're going to have a place of honor. You will have taught them how to speak so much English. No, no, just just faith. See, I'm helping the AI have have some. Um, what what is some? Pe- you're going to be in a better place either way. What do some people say? Um, you know, morality. There we go. That's you, right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I'm giving them. It's one of those apologetic <laughs> views of God. Uh, what's the moral argument for God? I forget what that's called. Um, anyway, <laughs> anyway, so I start this out. I, I ask this question of everyone from Texas and I'll be at, you're not, where are you? You're not from Texas. Where are you from? So I grew up in Kansas city, Missouri. Kansas or Missouri. Okay. And yeah. then when, how long have you lived in Texas? Uh, so right after my wife and I got married, we moved to Dayton, Ohio for five years and we've been in Texas six. Ah, oh, so, so, okay. Well, I'm still going to ask it cause you're in Texas. So great. It, it's gospel. It matters. It can possibly get you banned from even having the show released. Like I can just accidentally forget to record things. So, um, uh, a water burger or, or in and out burger. Yeah. So my wife will unapologetically say water burger. Mm. I will definitely say, uh, it kind of depends on my mood. Mm. Um, but usually water burger, mm. Yeah. And I do know that it's correctly pronounced water burger. Correct. Even though it's not spelled that way. <laughs> Even though it's not spelled that way. And most Texans, when I point it out, they go, no one's calls it water burger. We call yeah. it water burger. Yeah. It doesn't matter water how burger. it's spelled. <laughs> yeah. No, they, they yeah. Water burger. That yeah. was one of the best parts of moving down here was, was water burger. So, uh, so can I, I want to drill there a bit. So you say you've bought into the Kool-Aid of Texas. What does that mean? Because the climate that we live in right now of evangelicalism, the Bible belt, point. like what do you, like hear, I hear people say that and some people it's, it's like trigger, trigger language. So what, what do you mean yeah, by that? So when I say that we drank the Texas Kool-Aid, I mean, we have season tickets to the state fair. Mm. Um, we deep fry as many things as we can. Mm-hmm. I have gotten extremely proficient at smoking brisket. Mm. Um, I guess that's about it. Uh, I'm still a Kansas city barbecue boy at heart, but I do love Texas barbecue and I definitely have like my favorite spots marked out. You know, Mm -hmm. I really do think Texas is great. Like I love living here. There's so much cool stuff to do here. Uh, it is crazy to me that I'm closer to Kansas City, Missouri than I am to El Paso, which is also in Texas. <laughs> and you're in the same state. <laughs> I one time someone asked me how far away I lived. I was like, so you know, like when you drive to Memphis, right? There's like the Mississippi. He's like, yeah. I was like, that's not quite halfway. He's like, what? I was like, that's almost halfway. You got to get on the Arkansas line. And then where I'm from, that's halfway. And he, the look on his face was like, those are fake numbers. It's like a cartoonish oh, I- distance. All the time, people will be like, "Hey, I'm going to be in Houston for a couple of days, like ten hours hang away." Out, and None. I'm like, it, "Yeah, I am four and a half hours from Houston." And they're like, "What? I thought you lived in Texas." <laughs> I'm like close to Houston. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Midland is ten hours from Houston. Yeah, it's yeah. bananas. Yeah, I could be in Canada in ten hours. Yep. <laughs> so I'm going to do my best to get this episode out and in and in around uh, Halloween, but who knows what will happen, but let's make it happen. So I wanted to talk about the devil, the Satan, the thing, but before I do, can you go back to whatever the heck this hail Satan thing is? Cause you got some, you oh, got yeah, energetic the there. Like what I don't even, 
I don't understand, okay. but I haven't watched it. It's just for context. So, so do you remember the news story about the group when the the Oklahoma state government had a Ten Commandments monument? that they placed on their state capital grounds mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there was a group that commissioned the statue of baphomet to yes. be put there also yes didn't it win the... oh yeah. yeah oh yeah that was the satanic temple tst okay um and so this documentary is a documentary about tst as an organization who are they where did they come from what do they want and the director her name is penny lane who's, I mean, her films are brilliant. I, again, my interview with her is like one of my favorite things I've ever done in my life. Uh, she's, you know, born and raised atheist, uh, like friendly atheist, you know, doesn't have anything against religious people, uh, kind of intrigued and interested by religious people, but just, you know, doesn't come from a context of faith at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and so she, you know, uh, probably like many of us read the news stories about these guys and they, she was like, wow, they sound hilarious. Sounds like these like political jokesters that are sort of hiding behind the veil of a religious organization mm -hmm. to make political points. And so that was kind of why she, that was, that was the assumption she made going in to document them. And then through the course of the documentary, the question is being asked because uh, I should have said TST is officially an atheistic organization. So they don't believe in a personal Satan. When they talk about Satan and talk about calling themselves Satanists, they talk about Satan as like the ar archetypical punk rocker. You know, the first one who gave the finger to the man and said, you know, to heck with you, uh, whatever. And so what's interesting about the documentary is it really messes with the question of what counts as religion and how you know whether someone is being religious or not. Hmm. And it's again, I just think it's really fascinating. It's also heartbreaking because so many of the individual members of TST that they interview throughout the documentary are people who at one point were in a Christian church hmm. and who left for all of the reasons you probably could list off the top of your head. They yeah. were made fun of, they mm -hmm. were weird, they were excluded, they were isolated, they didn't fit in, they didn't, you know, fit in the mold or whatever. And, you know, it broke my heart a lot because I, you know, I wanted, I wanted to sit down with them and say, I love this like radical idea that you're committing yourself to that is like tearing down these unjust power structures, but like actually Jesus is that guy, mm. like Jesus is the one that does that stuff. And I know, like, I know that I know why you don't think that. Yeah. Um, but it just made me sad, you know, it made me, it, it was, it was a, it was just a reminder to me of the cost of a particular kind of Christian. Um, yeah. And again, I mean, we went and saw a filming of it when it was here in Dallas and the satanic temple chapter in Dallas was out like supporting it. And they all had their satanic temple t-shirts on afterwards. And like, I walked up to a guy and I was like, Hey man, I really enjoyed the film. Thank you so much for coming out. And he was like, Oh, are you interested in the satanic temple? And I was like, uh, <laughs> Actually. uh, I mean, sort, uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm a pastor and I, really like the idea of building like cross cult or like cross religion relationships. And he was like, Oh, what's that? Oh yeah. Sorry, man. I got it. And like totally just like bailed on me. And I was like, okay. I, I mean, again, I get it. Like, it's awkward for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, how, that's how know. sad is that? Do you think you can have ecumenism uh, with a non-religious organization? Oh, uh, well, I mean, again, what do you mean by non-religious, right? Uh, you said that's, you said, you said that's how they affiliated, like a non-religious. They're, they're atheistic, but they would call themselves religious. Okay. And so again, that's part of what the documentary interrogates yeah. is how can you be a religion if you don't worship someone 
And then, you know, it pokes at, well, we have rituals, we have community standards, right? We have in-group, out-group stuff. We have weekly gatherings. We have, you know, what, what, what do you have to do to count as religious? Yeah. Right. Like is, is believing in not believing still believing or is belief even an essential component of being religious or not? Hmm. And so again, I would hope that let's say there was a satanic temple chapter in my little town. And so I'm technically in Rowlett, which is a suburb of Dallas, but sure. Dallas has a you know, lot of say suburbs. There, right. A lot. Uh, you know, so let's say that there was a, a satanic uh, temple chapter in my community. Right. And they wanted to do an after school program to encourage kids to, you know, do reading and, and be invested in STEM. Well, I would sure hope that the people in my congregation who are STEM folks, of which there are quite a number, would be happy to partner with them and say, hey, we're all here to help these kids succeed in school. Yeah. And so we can agree that that's a good and we can work on that together. Yeah. You know, one of the tenets of TST uh, that they share in the documentary is that they're pro-science. And it's like, well, I hope my church at least is pro-science. Like we have a number of teachers and science teachers and scientists who are in our congregation. And again, I would hope that we could say, yes, our church is also pro-science. Yeah. And so that we can agree on that, you know, um, our congregation has a relationship with the mosque that's in the town next door. It's like the closest mosque to us, but there's not a mosque in our town. So there's a mosque in Saxe and we've been cultivating a relationship with them. And yeah, again, there's tons of stuff yeah. that we don't agree on, but there's tons of stuff we do agree yeah, on. Yeah, absolutely. And so yeah. it's a little awkward at first, but now there's members of our congregation and members of their congregation who text each other and talk about, you know, what their kids are up to and how school's going and work and all, you know, it just takes a little bit of time to build some relationships. So yeah. Yeah, I'd like to think our church could be friends with Satanists. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go on Hulu. I'm gonna search for that, and I'm fully aware because I'll watch it. I love a good documentary. Um, I've been watching one called Connected on Netflix late, lately, and okay. I watched one today. I don't know if you've watched it or not. I haven't. It. Um, I'll tell you about it afterwards because it has nothing okay. to do with religion. But at the end of it, I was like, this episode. I have to tell everybody about, it's like episode four, like a random episode. Here for it. All right. Yeah. And at the end of it, I was like, I could watch that again. Like I need to watch just that again. I don't really care wow. about the first three were okay. And there's sure. like seven, but that one, I was like, <laughs> I'm just going to watch four. This. Yeah. Again. Yeah. Um, but I'll tell you about it later, but yeah. yeah great. 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 Um, I want to hear about it. <laughs> yeah. But I'm terrified that whenever I search hail Satan and Hulu, and then it begins recommending shows of which my wife and I watch TV together often. It's going to, you know what I mean? It's going to really mess. It's like when you Google search something and you're like, is, am I committed enough right, to watch it right. that it's going to wreck my, my suggested Google searches. And I can't tell you what it's going to do because I was already watching all, all of the horror <laughs> stuff on Hulu anyway. So it, it pulls that stuff up anyway. So I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So biblically, when you say the word Satan, it's not usually used the same way that I think they're using the word Satan. And then you've written this book around Satan or yeah, am I wrong? Not. Yeah. Correct. So yeah, uh, what do you think most people are saying okay. when they say Satan? Yeah. So even, even TST, which officially doesn't believe that there is an entity that we could label as Satan or the devil or the Lucifer or whatever, still buys into what in my book I call the Lucifer myth, hmm. which is the story that I certainly grew up with in the church that I was raised in, which is that at some point, before creation of the earth or during the creation of, again, it's never really clear, but sometime early, early mm -hmm. Satan decided that he could run heaven better than God. And so he mounted a rebellion 
and it failed. And so he got kicked out of heaven. And then again, it gets a little fuzzy, either to hell or down to earth or somewhere. And then all of the angels that were kicked out with him became demons. And now uh, Satan runs around, you know, causing red lights to make us go late to work and causing the worship music to mess up and causing the pastor to forget where he is in the sermon <laughs> and, uh, you know, tempting us to all kinds of sin. That seems awful personal for you. Is that what happened Sunday? <laughs> no, actually, there's a really great book by a guy named Trip York uh, about uh, the devil, where he he goes on a quest to try to find the devil, and he shares a story about that. He said, <laughs> said I grew up in a holiness church, so I just went to a good old country church in Kentucky and knew I'd find the devil. And sure enough, halfway through, the CD skipped on the special music, and the pastor gets up. And he's like, "Now Satan just showed up because he doesn't want us to worship," you know. And like, oh, the devil is here. No, I, but I honestly remember, like. Pro probably one of the first like seeds of doubt that this really could be the real story that the Bible tells about Satan was when I was in youth group in high school and we were like, you know, like good little Southern Baptist standing in a circle, holding hands, waiting for the next person to squeeze. So it was our turn to pray. And <laughs> someone prayed, Lord, we just ask that you bar Satan from this room tonight. And I remember thinking like, I love my youth group. I love, what we do here. I love our worship. I love the biblical teaching that we get. But with all of the things going on in the world, and this was like pre 9-11, right? So this was like, it was cake compared to what, what we have now going on in the world. But with, you know, with all of the, all of the sex trafficking and all of the, you know, genocides being waged all over the world, all of the war, like we think that the devil is here in this room, like trying to disrupt our like medium sized youth group gathering. You know, and of course, like pretty immediately, I was like, yeah, I, I think if I asked that question, everyone would say, well, no, obviously we don't think that. Mm -hmm. But it but it, it really pushed me to start considering either we think that the devil is omnipresent the way God is omnipresent. And again, I, I think when you say that out loud, like most reasonable Christians would say, well, no, obviously we don't believe that. Yeah. Well, then it became, okay, so what we must be doing then is using the idea of the devil as like a catch all for evil, you know? And so when we, when we ask God to bar Satan from this place, what we actually mean is like any sort of evil or negativity or something like that. So it just, it just made me start wondering like, well, okay, then, then what do, what do I know about the devil? And what, you know, what do I think about the devil? And I did the worst possible thing, which was go to Bible college, you know, and <laughs> go somewhere where they taught me how to read the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> And so I remember I was, I was actually preparing a Bible study for some friends of mine over the summer. Like we weren't even in class and I just some friends asked if I would lead a Bible study and they wanted to kind of start in Genesis and see how far we got. We got to Genesis 11 by the end of the summer, but I would go in like, you know, cause I was going to, I was in college and I, I worked and had nothing else to do. So I would go into the library and spread out like 20 commentaries around me and just like bask in the nerddom. Of Every week of is you. Every single week is you. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I'm just, I mean, I'm just doing, I, again, this Bible study was probably terrible for anyone that wasn't a, a Bible, a Bible major in there, right? They were probably like crossing their eyes, like who cares about any of this, but I was loving it. And I had the JPS commentary, which is a Jewish commentary series yep. on Genesis. And I'm in Genesis three, right? With the snake. And the, the guy who wrote the JPS commentary said, I had this note that he said, nowhere in the Christian or the Jewish scriptures is the snake in Genesis three identified as Satan. And I was like, that can't be true because of course that's literally what I've heard my entire life. Yeah. But I was like, well, this guy, this guy had the brass to put it in print. <laughs> like he's going to be pretty sure of himself. <laughs> so it, it, it kind of, it kind of like messed me up. You know, I was like, well, wait a second. 
doesn't it? And of course I read Genesis three and it sure doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so then I was like, well, wait, where, like, where did that idea come from? If, if it's not in the text. And, and so that sent me off on this whole long trajectory of trying to figure out, well, where is the story in the Bible anyway, that he rebelled against God and got kicked out of heaven and all that kind of stuff, you know? And, and then if, if that's not in there, what is actually in there? Yeah. And so where I kind of end up going in my book is identifying, uh, which again, I'm far from the first person to do anything like this, but the word Satan actually is a Hebrew title that means accuser. So, so a lot of scholars will talk about the Satan, the accuser. And it seems sort of like uh, he was something like a prosecuting attorney for, for God, who, whose job it was to kind of walk the earth and record the sins of humanity and then bring them before God and, and are, again, prosecute human sin in the divine court. And uh, if you kind of hang out with that interpretation of the Satan character, something really interesting happens when you get into the New Testament, which is that uh, you, you go to the book of Revelation, which is where the war in heaven is with mm -hmm. Satan being cast out and taking a third of the angels with him. But the timeline of that is not before creation. It's actually with the ascension of Jesus to the throne of heaven. And so there's something for John the Revelator about Jesus's death, resurrection, and ascension that casts the accuser out of heaven. And there's, there's actually even this beautiful hymn at the end of Revelation chapter 12, where it says, rejoice you heavens for the accuser of our siblings has been thrown down. Mm. Uh, and then it says, but woe to the earth, right? So it even, again, it even uses that title, you know, the accuser. And so one of the things I, I talk about in my book is how there's this really interesting shift in title in the New Testament, because we don't see the word devil in the Old Testament. We only see the word devil in the New Testament. And that is, that's from a Greek word that means a liar. Mm. And so I talk about how there's this shift where in, in the Old Testament, essentially before Jesus's death and resurrection, uh, Satan is the accuser. He's the one who, who, who uh, accuses us rightfully before God's throne. But after the resurrection of Jesus, after our sin has been atoned for and we've been made one with God, um, all of those same charges now become lies. Because now, because of the work of Christ, we are now no longer guilty before the throne of God. Christ has purchased us you know, out of bondage and purchased our freedom and our salvation. And so uh, one of the things I kind of wrap around into the end of my book is that the the weapon that Satan has to wield against believers is deception. And that's, again, that's something that's all the way through the book of Revelation is, is that essentially Satan is trying to convince the seven churches of the Revelation that uh, Caesar is Lord and not Jesus and that they should give up their allegiance to the lamb and follow the beast and, and all this kind of stuff. You know? yeah. So, it, yeah. Um, so again, that's kind of, I draw a lot of, of, a lot of it from there, you know, a lot of from Paul's words that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right. So, yeah. So that's what, like the short ish version. What does, a how do I say this without being crass? I don't know how, <laughs> um, all of that I'm totally on board with and the character of Satan that has become idolicized in, in much of the Western church. You're a pastor. I'm not, I'm, I work at a bank. Is the church, you feel like, in a place that if we took away that MacGuffin to move across the story, and the fact, I use that word intentionally because I know you consume a massive amount of media. I've seen you doing it on Facebook. I don't know why. Who is picking those movies, by the way? So I picked, I picked like the, the big ones to get started, but then a lot of them are actually 
friends who pick them uh, uh, <laughs> who want to see me suffer. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm really surprised that no one has like just recommended all the Left Behind movies. But um, uh, that was last year, actually. Oh. I had to watch the Nick Cage Left Behind. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, that one is all. I mean, all of them. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, is the church in a place now, or do you see it getting a place in the future that? Satan is not used as a MacGuffin to move along the narrative of fear to get people to continue to come to church. Maybe that is just my bias of my views of Satan. Well, one, that absolutely happens. I mean, I I grew up with that. If you died tonight, do you know where you'd be going? And Mm -hmm. the devil made me do it and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I love horror films, right? The Exorcist, which came out in 1976, like drove people to churches in mass because they were terrified of being possessed like this poor innocent little girl was possessed, right? Um, and actually a lot of demonic possession films are extremely conservative in their values and in their theology, um, which we don't think about. But take The Exorcist, for example. Uh, it's it's the 70s, right? So this is a this is a film based on a book that was written in the wake of the sexual revolution of the 60s, right? Okay. And the source material uh, is actually changed. The, the true story that The Exorcist is based on was about a young boy who lived in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, the book was actually changed to be a young girl. And then that's, of course, what turned into the movies. And so we have a... A innocent young girl who is in a broken home, right? Which again, echoes of the 60s, you know, women's lib, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, the pill giving women sexual liberation, all this kind of stuff. And the solution to these uh, demonic possession of this girl, most of the symptoms of which actually just look like puberty and bratty teenagerdom, not demon possession, <laughs> are for a literal father to come back into the broken home and restore order. Hmm. And so, again, yes, it's a it's a movie about demon possession that we were always told if you watch it, you'll open your door for demons to come in and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But the, the morality of the film is an extremely conservative reaction to like this, the women's liberation movement and the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Um, hmm. And again, a lot of demon possession movies follow this basically the same format. Can I be oh, honest yeah. with you? Yeah. I, I don't really watch any horror shows ever. Okay ever although i'm familiar with a lot of the names um sure so i will struggle with some of the that's content right. that's right. refer- but that's fine because i'm sure i'm I, I know i'm a minority in that it's not that i don't like to be scared it's that i can't stop looking through the script like i i can't oh, I, I don't allow myself yeah. to enjoy it like i don't like i genuinely <laughs> like when i'll go through like I, yeah, sc- totally. scare mares or whatever back over here yep. i went to liberty so that's what we would do we would scare people you know at halloween and and then with a chainsaw, convince them with, with the Bible and the chainsaw that they need Jesus um, uh, with no chains. Like I'm the guy walking through looking at the scaffolding and the stack right. and the structure like, <laughs> oh, so when we turn the corner, oh, the yeah. room's going to tilt to the right. Yeah. Like I take all nice. the fun out of it. And I, I do that with well, horror movies as well. In almost all demon possession films, the main oppressed person is a young girl and again mm. that's very much on purpose. Uh, again, even if it's not, a, it's like it's like the DNA of the genre, right? Yeah. And again, that's because we fought like uh, we want to protect them. They're the most vulnerable. And these films, which are devil stories, right, are, are ultimately these very conservative statements about uh, 
the power of the devil to and you know we uh, if you've seen the conjuring movies again i assume you haven't but for folks who have mm-hmm. one of the questions that the couple asks when they come in to the house is are your kids baptized and the dad says no and then the the exorcist says well we probably need to fix that <laughs> so mm. again there's this like there's this like heavy conservative evangelistic moralizing that's going on in a lot of these films huh. um the, we did judgment houses at the first church where I was a youth pastor, which sound very much like the scare bears. Right. Yeah. And the whole thing with all of those were here are all of the bad things that you could possibly do. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, you go in and you see people being in a big by the white devil tent. In hell. <laughs> yep. And then, and then you go and get to go to heaven, which I never understood this because heaven, like not like hell was fun. Right. It definitely hell looked bad, yeah. but heaven was like cotton and white sheets and like people like <laughs> just sort of like hanging out in robes. I was like, this place looks awful really terrible yeah like nowhere i'd actually you know but then yeah then we do the salvation message and so so i do think that that's getting less and less Mm. but i will also say that things tend to go in cycles right so i wonder if the church doesn't recover a stronger theology of who god is and God's uh, victory over Satan at the cross, that that while it may be gone for our kids' generation, it maybe is going to come back around because people say, well, we just went from talking about the devil all the time to never talking about the devil. Hmm. Maybe what we need is some good old-fashioned fire and brimstone. And all of a sudden, the thing that we, like, I think rightfully moved away from, you know, in our generation is going to be something that our, our kids or our grandkids want to bring back in to get that good old time religion. That is a horror movie right there. I've never actually sure. thought about that, but I'm not happy about that last sentence at all. Like that, that's, that's hellfire and brimstone brought me to church, but it didn't keep me there. Um, yeah. Pretty girls it's in high school. Did. In a way. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> just being honest. Yeah. Uh, but then after that, and then after that though, other things kept me there, but, but yeah. yeah. Um, God, that's scary. I don't like that. I don't like that at all. Well, that's why we need a better theology of the devil, right? What is that theology? And more importantly, the part of your book that I'm uncomfortable with, um, the parts that I like the most are where you give some narrative voice to some of the Mm. characters in the Bible, um, specifically Herodias. And I don't even know if I'm saying that right, because I didn't didn't go to a fancy seminary. I like the way that you work story into there. Um, Another one of my favorite books that I read last year is called Experimental Theology or No. Experiments in Honesty is what it's called. Oh, okay. um, I don't know if you've read that book or not. I have not. He's telling a parable of um, Jesus uh, basically saying, you know, put your nets on the other side. But he's doing it in a way where he's like, you know, the guys come in, they're pissed off, they're grumbling. This guy's punching that guy. This guy's arguing about how hungry he is. And he's like, you're hungry. I got five kids at home. Like He's just narrating it all the way out. Yeah. And then Jesus walks up and he's like, sarcastically, guys, for real, put on the other side. And everyone, everyone points at him like, who, who's this guy? Think who's this guy? Yeah. 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 But it's just all, and, and, and it made me laugh out loud where I'm like, yeah, I think I would be that way. Like, absolutely. This is ridiculous. Put it on the other side. What are you, what are you, an idiot? You think I was born yesterday? <laughs> put it yeah. on the, put it on the other side. The way I've always read that now, ever since then is, um, the guys in the boat, like Bill O'Reilly, like, we'll do it live. What is that? Do it live? I don't know if you've yeah. seen that or you get that reference at all. <laughs> oh, I'm going to send it to you. Okay, um, please it do, is yeah. not appropriate for this show. <laughs> um, but, but, um, but yeah, so what should a theology of the devil or Satan be? What should that be? If you could write a new text for that. 
And then why should I care about having empathy for any villains in the Bible? Although I struggle with that because I have empathy and I've heard you or read you or heard someone talk about you talking about, like, I, I, I genuinely believe that Killmonger is the hero of Absolutely. Black Panther. Yeah. <laughs> um, that doesn't mean that T'Challa is not the hero, but Killmonger definitely is the hero. And I know that pisses a lot of people off and I don't, and I don't care. Yeah. But why should I, as a Christian, want to have empathy for the villains, especially when we think about the Satan, but people that do bad things, what looks to be intentionally? Yeah. So uh, first, uh, uh, in brief, theology of the devil. I think we need to acknowledge that there is a, a strong and active force in the world um, we can label it demonic, we can label it satanic, we can label it diabolical, um, but it is it is a force that seeks to trap us in service to idols, uh, whether that's the idol of the self, whether that's the idol of the state, whether that's the idol of religion. I mean, there are a, a million different idols, but it's always seeking to deceive us, to lie to us about who God is and about who we are and how we relate to each other. And I think if the church were if the church had a stronger hermeneutic of suspicion towards ourself mm. and towards our own theology, I think we would be a lot better off in the long run. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's sort of my theology of the devil. I would like to recover. If we could start labeling these, you know, if we could label nationalism as satanic, um, if we could label the radical individualism as satanic, uh, if we could, if we could, you know, label these things, if we could label legalism as satanic, you know, and actually say, no, these are tools that the Satan uses to deceive us. Mm -hmm. um, because again, that's what revelation says his goal is. Uh, the whole, the whole message of, of revelation with the war in heaven is that Satan has already lost. And so now he's just trying to take as many of us out with him as he can. Right. He is not trying to beat God. He's already lost. He is now just trying to hurt God the only way he can, which is by hurting those that God loves. Mm -hmm. And so, again, I, I think if we were more acutely aware of that and, and better at identifying the tactics that that the adversary uses, it would it would be be better for us. And it's yeah. not sorry. It's not Kansas records. Um, I checked. <laughs> they're all fine. Um <laughs> what so. if you slow the beats per minute down well that that is true yeah no <laughs> um, i didn't try that all the way but uh, yeah so as far as empathy right like i think where this started for me the the first character in the book i had the ideas for was herod mm -hmm. and it was because i got to go to the holy land in 2011 and i actually saw all of the things that herod built and i actually was in awe of this guy and I think the thing that broke it for me was when we went to the Masada, which is, you know, this big, this big mesa in the middle of the desert, right next to the Dead Sea. And it was literally the place where Herod built a palace for like, if Rome turned on him and Judea turned on him and like, he literally had to go into hiding for his life. This was like his palace of last resort. And there was, again, we're on a mesa where there is like literally no easy access and we're in the middle of a desert and he had a he had a swimming pool built on top of this mesa that i'm sure they had like some poor slaves had to like carry and fill water <laughs> with like buckets and i was like what a weirdo that <laughs> he was like so paranoid but also like so self-indulgent yeah and it, it it's made hot up me, there yeah well yeah right you understand why you'd want a swimming pool yeah but, um <laughs> So, so it made me, it made me really like dive in and say, 
okay, who is this guy who was so brilliant in so many ways? I mean, the the he created a harbor at what is now Caesarea Maritima, but it was literally like a spot on the coast where there was nothing. And he used like bleeding edge engineering technology to create out of nothing a port on the Mediterranean for Israel that rivaled Alexandria, which which was the second biggest port in the Mediterranean next to Rome. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, like, like a crazy idiot can't do that. Mm-hmm. Right. Like this takes it, this takes an incredible mind. Um, and so it made me really start pressing into who this guy is, how he felt. And again, I'm trying to understand that horrific story at the beginning of Matthew, where he orders the deaths of the infants in Bethlehem. Yeah. And, you know, as, as I, as I worked through the material for Herod, I began to understand him in a way that at no point uh, led me to want to excuse what he did. But it put me in a place where suddenly he went from being this like cartoonish mustache twirling, like genocidal monster to a person that I wasn't sure if I was in his position, if I would have had the guts to make a different choice. Mm. And that was a really scary place to find myself. What do you mean his position? Okay, so because, and, and I, I want to give that some context. So the way I always, and, and I haven't done a lot of work on Herod at all, the way I've always looked at it is I am afraid I'm going to lose power. Rome's either going to kill me or they're going to kick me out, and I don't want to lose power. So I need to, I need to protect the base, and maybe I'm way off there. No, no, no. I mean, I think that's largely it, right? But um, so first of all, here's the question that here's what confounded me. How just off the top of your head, like how many how many kids were killed in Bethlehem? Because it was it was all of the boys two years old and under. So like in your head, what is that number? Oh, I don't even a, a lot. Um, yeah, like thousands. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like what, what what forty thousand people there? I don't know, six seven thousand. Okay, I'm just so guessing. I, totally guessing. I did. I know, me too, right? But it feels like in our in our spirits, I think it feels like a, a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Like thousands of, of kids. So I, I did some real deep digging on this when I was working on material for this book because I wanted to know, like, well, like realistically, with all the demographic information we know and everything, like how many how many boys two years old or under would have been living in Bethlehem around the time Jesus was born? Seven. Okay. Okay. Now, again, is seven babies being murdered horrific yes absolutely not unequivocally unacceptable right it's still a monstrous act if it's seven or 70 or seven thousand but the calculus does change because so the way i the way i read herod is um you know the magi are almost certainly would have been astrologers from the persian empire they were zoroastrian priests Mm -hmm. and so uh the parthians were sort of like the big arch nemesis to rome in you know in in the east right they were the they they had had they had gone to war with rome a, a few different times over the last couple hundred years uh, actually when the maccabean dynasty fell 
uh, when the Hasmoneans were kicked out, it was actually because Parthia and Rome were fighting a proxy war. And that's how Mark Antony and Herod originally became friends hmm. was because uh, Rome backed Herod and Herod's father against the usurpers who were being backed by Parthia. And so it was kind of like what we did with Vietnam, you know, between us and China. And so um, Herod, Herod sees a diplomatic envoy from Parthia show up at his door saying, hey, we're here to pay homage to the new king. Oh. And, you know, one of the things we know for sure about Herod is that he was really paranoid. <laughs> and mm. so for him, he was sure that Rome was going to hear about this. Now, whether they did or not, we don't know, but Herod was sure they would. And so he tries to trick them, right? He tries to say, well, hey, once you find him, come back and tell me so I can go worship him too. Yeah. You know, so he, he's trying to, he's trying to find this new king and lock it down and let Rome know for sure that he's, he's theirs, but they slip away. And so Herod now has to act decisively. If he doesn't, yes, I, he will lose power, right? Rome will remove him mm -hmm. for being disloyal or Parthia will come in and, and, you know, back this, whoever this new Messiah is that he keeps hearing about. Um, and so, but I think the calculus in his head could easily be explained away. Seven kids now or 700 when we're caught in a war between Rome and Parthia, hmm. you know? you know, the good of the many outweigh the good of the few kind yeah. of calculus. And again, it's still monstrous, yeah. but in my book, in the, in the nonfiction section of the Herod chapter, I, I tie it into drone warfare and talk about way many more civilians and specifically kids have died because of American drones uh, ever since the Obama administration. And most of us don't even know, let alone care because it makes us feel safe. And yeah. so we, we gladly trade nameless foreign lives for a sense of security. And we don't even blink twice about it. So and yet we're so quick to rush to vilify Herod. So that info on Herod, is that taught in seminaries? Like, does the average pastor know that it's such a small so, no. number? No. Um, no, I, I had to go digging for it. I feel like I feel like that should be like required. Because it's <laughs> well, because it's such yeah. a small number that you're not going to forget it. Like like it's because it's so disjarring from what you would expect. Um, I also well, think honest, in, in hindsight, like my view of population is skewed differently than the ancient Near East, just because civilizations are bigger now. So absolutely. My, yeah. my context is different, which is all the more important to read the Bible through the lens of context. Right. Um, I've never even heard the name Parthia, never even heard the name. Um, I'm not even sure I'm saying that right. Like, yeah, you are. Um, in Revelation, the, four, the first horseman of the apocalypse, the mounted bowman, uh -huh. uh, is actually a Parthian cavalryman. They were famous. Their cav cavalry, much like Rome had their phalanx, the Parthians had their mount mounted bow bowman cavalry who were terrorizing everyone. So much. Every time I do a podcast, I have so much more work to do. It's not even funny. <laughs> um, I, well, again, I learned all this because I was doing like the deep dive research. You, what you mentioned the Herodias chapter earlier. Mm -hmm. My wall looked like a serial killer's den. Like it was like all these trying to chart out her genealogy and which Herod she married and which one was her dad and her uncle and all. You know, I have that up right now. Hold on, let me find it. Um, yeah, there. Where's it at? Yeah, yeah. You're like here's some of the highlights of the Herodian family history that pertain especially to her. Imagine how much fun their family reunions would be. Herodias' great aunt Salome, I manipulated her grandfather Herod, you know, into killing Herodias' grandmother. And then you just keep on going and going and going for quite a while. Quite, <laughs> it, quite, it quite a while. Shame, right? like, <laughs> yeah. It's... Yeah. Maybe that's where George got it from. I want to use a, a hashtag that, that people would, that people would, would relate to today. So in, in context of biblical villainry, 
the Herod story seems to repeat itself over and over where when you view it from their lens. So what is a good practice for people reading the Bible that when they come up against a villain that they can kind of put themselves in a mindset of reading it that way? Because I think most people in America read the Bible as if we're Israel or the, you know, like we're the chosen people um, when arguably we should be Persia or Babylon or Rome. But even that's not quite right with the way that you're approaching villainry in in the Bible. What's a good way to maybe approach the text as you're reading it that to, to get yourself in a good mindset to kind of go, okay, well, what's actually happening here? Yeah, so one, I think we need to take a deep breath and say understanding does not imply uh, agreement. Mm-hmm. Right. I can understand again, I can understand Herod and still say he made a sinful choice. Mm-hmm. Right. What he did was wrong. So did I Obama. understand it. Yeah. I, yeah, right. Yeah. I understand it better. Yeah. But it was still it was still a sin. Mm-hmm. Um so I, I think a lot of people are nervous to even try to practice empathy towards the villains mm-hmm. because they're afraid that what we're gonna do is start condoning sin. Right. So okay. no, 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 no. Um it's still bad. Uh, we just, uh, the, the, the spiritual fruit comes because it's a practice in humility, right? If I look down my nose at the villains, then I'm assuming I'm better than them. And I'm assuming I'm not like them, but if, but what I can do instead is say, and this is the, this is as I was writing the fiction, especially what kept ringing in my head was no one is the villain of their own story. Mm. Right. If we if we believe these people in the Bible are real people who behaved in these ways, then they behaved in ways that made sense to them. They did things that they thought were in their best interest. Now, we don't always do the best thing. Sometimes we just do the thing that seems best at the moment. Right. Mm -hmm. But, you know, someone like Herod. Yeah. When he ordered the deaths of the infants, um, why why did that seem like his best? thing when judas betrayed jesus why did that seem like his best move uh, to him when cain killed abel why did he why did he think that was the, the best option he had in the moment yeah um when delilah betrayed sam just trying to go through all the ones i did in the book right yeah um yeah beginning in that space helps us begin to connect to that person who were they what were their needs and concerns what were they afraid of what did they hope for and then again how did they get into this place because some of them some of them made a bad choice in the moment, but mm-hmm. others had made a number of bad choices that got him. And so I think like Cain, right? I think Cain in the moment made a bad choice. Um, not, not to say that Cain was perfect before that or anything like that. I'm just saying like in that, I, I don't think that like he went around like dreaming about murdering his brother for years before he finally yeah. did, right? Um, but but someone like Herod, of course, he had made a he had made a lifetime of decisions that got him to that point. Jezebel was the same way, right? A lifetime of decisions that got her to the place where she felt like uh, the things that she did were the best options that she had. Is okay. there a biblical case for saying hashtag Herod was right or hashtag whatever was right? Like, is there is there a villain in the Bible that you're like, you know oh, what? Delilah for sure. Um, in fact. I'm a little concerned, like most people who finish the Delilah chapter are like, oh, Samson is the villain and I'm glad he's dead. And I'm like, hmm. <laughs> like what have but, I but done? Again, that's, what have I that's, done? <laughs> that's, you know, the whole, the whole, the, the image that I always use when I preach or teach the book of Judges is that it's a big downward spiral, right? Hmm. It starts really, really good. And then each judge is a little bit worse than the one before them until Samson is literally the bottom of the barrel. And Samson is the only judge who has superpowers. 
And he's also the only one who literally never does anything unless it's in his own best interests. Yeah. He could not care less about Yahweh. He could not care less about Israel. He only cares about Samson and what Samson wants. Yeah. And so uh, what I found a lot of people doing, which again was gratifying, I'm like when people would read my Delilah chapter and they would say, I was sure that you had made up about 90% of that chapter. And then I went back and I read the Samson story and I was like, Oh my gosh, it's all in there. Like he yeah. is the worst. I was like, yeah, like, but again, judges thinks he's the worst, right? It's not like judges is trying to paint this like rosy, not like David, right? Where they're like, oh yeah, yes, he was a mercenary and yes, he was a terrible father and yes, he raped Bathsheba, but he's a great guy. You know, it's like, not like that. It was <laughs> Samson, like judges presents him as the villain of the story. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, I think Delilah is definitely the one I'm like, yeah. 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 <laughs> what I hear in that is you as the pastor saying, wait, so you read what I wrote and then you went to read the Bible. And now Bible, you're talking right? about it. We did it. That's, that's we a win. Did it. Yeah. When people said, I made me go back and read my Bible. I'm like, excuse me. I just, so it's a beautiful moment. I don't remember this being in your book, but since I've read your book, I've wrestled with this and I don't know who's the villain in the story. I'm curious your take on it. And maybe it's in the book and I bypass it because I, I, I read fairly sure, quickly fair, fair. and I'm consuming three or four books at a time yep. every week. Is Jacob or Esau the villain in the in in the in the Bible where he's you know trading his birthright, I can't. I honestly am having trouble figuring out who the villain is in there because the overarching narrative needs to be something different. You know what I mean? But yeah, absolutely. I, who is the villain there? I'm an older brother and I'm hairy, so I'm definitely gonna side with my boy Esau, right? <laughs> like, as someone who has a younger brother, we fought all the time. You know, I. I, I honestly don't know that there necessarily would have had to have been a villain there, mm. right? That very much could have been a family squabble that had worked itself out, which, you know, spoiler for much later in Book of Genesis, they do work it out. Like, I actually think the moment when Jacob finally, he's like, he's burned every bridge he's ever crossed and he has to like come crawling on his hands and knees back to Esau begging for forgiveness. And like, he literally said, he literally separates his family and sends them two different directions. Cause he's like, well, at least if he kills me and tracks my family down, like some people were like, that's where Jacob's headspace is when he goes back to Esau and Esau like swoops him up and kisses him and welcomes him back. Like, I would love to, I would love to have the saga of Esau and see like where he did all of that hard work to get to where he forgave Jacob mm. by the time we get to meet Esau again. Right. That's, that's the book you write. The next one there, you yeah, write, there the, it is. The saga that's of Esau, that's, yeah, that's it, the it narrative is. you write. Absolutely. Yeah. He's like the Sasquatch man out in the wilderness, like just being all <laughs> mad and sad. And then, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think, uh, I mean, it, I think Jacob very much is the villain for most of the story. I mean, his name literally means trickster, right? Mm. And he is constantly conning everyone he meets, uh, constantly deceiving. And, and the only time that that really becomes heroic is when he meets Laban, who's an even bigger con man, right? And then it's yeah. like, then it's like, who's going to finally get the best up on the other one? And Jacob only wins because his wife is just as wily as he is. <laughs> and so... Um, yeah, I, I think that until Jacob really wrestles with the angel or whatever it was, you know, by the riverbed and ends up with the limp and all of that and gets his name changed to Israel, uh, even after that, he's still a little shifty, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think until that point, it's hard for me to have, it's hard for me to root for him yeah. in the stories and a lot of the stories. And yeah. Yeah. Esau was a dummy. Um, but gosh, like, 
I'm glad I'm not penalized forever for a lot of the choices I made early in my life, you know? So yeah. two final questions. One is, one is really relative and, and one is not at all. So Great. for someone like myself that maybe doesn't have Hulu or maybe they do, and you're like, you know what? You're a Christian. You're stuck in quarantine because you don't want to get COVID from, from Milky yep. Ways at your neighbors that didn't wash their hands. All of those are conjecture. And I'm sure that sentence itself makes people... <laughs> Uh, triggered in one way or, or another. And I'm sorry, but that's the world that we live in because I have three children that we don't have Halloween costumes yet for. And what I'm going to do is just go the day after Halloween and buy it nice. on clearance and give it to them. Um, and then charge. Do you charge a, 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 a fatherhood tax in your house? No. So I work at a bank. So storage is not free. There yeah. is a penalty of one piece of candy per child okay, per day fair. for yeah. the storage in my house yeah. of said candy. And yeah. I definitely mean it. And I get my pick of the litter. Of what, and what you'll find is my children hide their best candy. Nice. So, um, which is fine. I don't care. Yeah, right. You're just, teaching them good values. I'm teaching them economics, you know. That's just right. got to start, got to start small. Um, so, Offshore accounts, right? That's where they start. <laughs> yeah, in their bedroom. <laughs> um, <laughs> offshore accounts. Um, so what do they watch? They're at home with their family. They want to get scared. What do they watch? Because you consume so much media. Like, what what do they do? What would you watch? Well, you said with their family, right? So is this... I'm yeah, not, whatever. Not I mean, family is okay. a relative term. Okay. Let's see. What are some of the great recent horror films? I mean, Hereditary was very scary, and it is literally about family trauma. So that that one's horrifying and mm -hmm. great. Uh, Good Night, Mommy, the poster that I have behind me, is also great. It's Austrian, so you do have to deal with subtitles. Got to do some it work. Is, it is uh, messed up in, in a great way. I think really good. Let's see. Oh, you know, uh, there's an Australian horror film called The Babadook. That's a few years old. You can probably find it on most. I think it's even on like Netflix and stuff. Definitely but on Hulu. It, brought, uh, I'm brought, sure it's brought to you by Hulu. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, the Babadook is great because it's actually, it's about a single mother who has a child who's probably somewhere on the spectrum mm. and he is being set slash. Maybe she is being tormented by the spirit. And it's one of those movies where you want to ask the question, is it real or is it in her head? And that's like the wrong question to be asking, you know, like, hmm. like just let it, let it be, you know, let it be what it is. I'm trying to think if there's anything, if you want something that's more fun, I'll tell you what, there is a movie on Netflix called Tucker and Dale versus evil. And it is the classic, the college kids go into the woods and get uh, terrorized by murderous hillbillies except the whole thing is from the hillbillies perspective and they're just the two <laughs> nicest good old boys named tucker and dale and they just keep being these horrible misunderstandings and accidents and it it is hilarious like i promise you will laugh and laugh and then be horrified at yourself for laughing but it also actually is a really good film about the assumptions that we make about other people and how we stereotype. So it's deliverance kind of from the viewpoint of guys, I was just trying to see if you were yeah. fine. I just yeah, like, what if, what if these were all horrible misunderstandings? <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah. All right. So final question, which is slightly more serious, but you can okay. take it wherever you want. So when someone comes to you and they're like, I don't understand what God is and you're trying to wrap words around whatever that is, what is that? That's a great question. You know, I usually try to start from a place where wherever they are, right? So if they have some kind of religious background, I try to start, maybe I like to do, I like to do the, uh, um, 
Aquinas thing of God is not right. So God is not a hateful rule following judge. God is not a cruel taskmaster who doesn't want you to have fun. Uh, God is not uh, the righteous person who's wait, can't wait to smite you and send you to hell. Um, I, I tend to start with the idea that God is an all loving creator who is the source of life and good. And so uh, I, especially if I'm early in a faith conversation with someone, I try not to even tie it super, super specifically to Christianity yet. Mm. Uh, like, like for instance, I have a good friend whose uh, whole family is Hindu and she came to Christ, uh, I think in high school, after high school. And she and I were talking one time about how anxious she feels about talking about religion with her family. And I said, well, why? And she's like, well, cause they're Hindu and I'm Christian. I was like, well, well, sure. But like, why does that make you so anxious? Right. And she said, well, I just, I just hate having to tell them they're wrong about everything. And I was like, well, are they wrong about everything? And you know, we kind of played with that for a while. And I said, you know, if you have someone who's an earnest Hindu, then there are things that they believe about Jesus that are true and that are or things they believe about God that are good and true and praiseworthy. And you can actually affirm those things and meet them in those spaces and understand that God is present with them in those spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, a good friend of mine who's a fascinating co-host, uh, Matt Michelatis, he, he has actually has a book on evangelism. And one of my favorite stories about evangelism he ever tells is that he was doing, uh, he's with Campus Crusade for Christ, which is now called crew. And uh, they were sharing, they would, they would do this thing where they walk up to people and just say, Hey, would you like to have a spiritual conversation? And then if they say yes, they say, what do you want to talk about? And they just, you know, then they, again, they just try to be present with that person and be a spiritual companion to them. So he walked up to this kid on a college campus one time and said, Hey, would you be interested in having a spiritual conversation? The guy lit up like a Christmas tree, right? He's like, yes, I would love to. That's like, Oh, great. I said, okay, good. What do you want to talk about? And he goes, well, here's something you need to know about me. I'm the most Buddhist person you'll ever meet. And of course, Matt's like, oh no, <laughs> right? He's like, I'm so Buddhist. My Buddhist family always tells me to chill out with all the Buddhism stuff. Matt's like, okay, great. So like, <laughs> what, uh, what do you want to talk about? And he goes, well, here's my question. He said, Buddha was very clear that he's not God and that we should not worship him as a God. But all of my Buddhist family worships him like a God. And it makes me so mad because Buddha specifically said, I'm not God, don't worship me. It's like, I just, I just wish that if there was someone who was God, they would say, Hey guys, I'm God and you should worship me. (laughs) And Matt goes, uh, could I show you, could I introduce you to someone? So here's the thing. (laughs) Kid goes, yeah, absolutely. So he, he gives him some passages from the gospels to read and the kid reads them. And Matt goes, well, what do you think about that? And the kid goes, I guess I'm a Christian now. I love Jesus and I want to worship him. (laughs) (laughs) And so Matt makes the point, like it was this kid's faithful Buddhism Mm. that was the spirit's way of preparing his heart to receive the gospel seed. Right. And it it was, it was his very devotion to Buddhism that would have written, that would have caused a lot of people to write him off as a lost cause that actually made him the perfect fertile soil to receive the gospel. Mm. And so for me, when I approach someone who doesn't, who wants to know who God is, who has these spiritual questions, that's what I'm always trying to do is, is if they're asking me this question, or if this is a conversation we're entering into, that means that the spirit is already present in their life somewhere and already at work in their life somewhere. And the ground has been tilled such that they're coming to me and asking this question, especially as I'm a pastor, right? Like no one comes to me and just ask me unless they want to get into it because I like to get into it. Mm -hmm. 
And so, yeah, I don't, I don't have like a go-to answer for that. I always, I'm always trying to look and ask like, how is God already present? How is God already at work? And then I want to point those things out to them and then invite them to take another step closer to Jesus. You're in 27 corners of the internet. Where do you want people to go? (laughs) So at JR Foresteros is everything that I have. So uh, that's the easiest places to find me. Um, And then, uh, yeah, so Twitter, Facebook, all of that. My my main my main podcast that's active right now is the Fascinating Podcast. So if you if you want to hear more of that, that's what I do. And if you do like horror movies, uh, well, if this is going up at Halloween, uh, you'll probably just have missed it. But on my Instagram and Facebook stories right now, I'm doing uh, monster movie madness. So I'm pairing up classic monster movies and inviting my people to vote for them. So. Do Facebook stories also go away after a day? Yes, because they're they're Facebook bought Instagram and so they just right. they port over from Instagram. That's so so it's the same exact thing. That's so stupid. But it's great for voting because then people only have twenty four hours to vote. Once they do that, they're gone, and then I get to like move on in the poll. So it, it's it's good for certain things. So for me, the way I use social media, I don't get notifications at all. So if I'm there, oh, yeah. I want to be there, and I'm only there for like twenty minutes, and then I'm gone because um, I, I can't stop arguing with people. You're not their target demographic. <laughs> I guess not. I, I guess that's fair. I'm, I'm fine with that. I don't have to feel obligated to use every feature. I don't watch every show on Netflix. So um, perfect. But we do on Hulu. Every show. Hulu. Every yeah, I love brought, it. We brought, watch every one. Brought, that's the name of the t- that's the title of the episode. Brought to you by Hulu. Delilah was right. Um, so, <laughs> so thank you for your evening. I really appreciate it. This Thanks to your family so as well. Fun, thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. I want to again thank JR for his time and encourage you to have a great and fantastic week and beginning of fall with your family. Again, thank you to the patrons of the show. If you haven't rated and reviewed the show, do that as well because it costs no money and you can do it, I think, on every platform. It helps other people find the show when they are looking for podcasts. So consider doing that. A huge thank you to one of what's become my new favorite addictions when it comes to music, to the band OLY, for their permission to use their music in this episode. That song, Vapor, by the time you hear this, about two and a half, three weeks now, it has been on repeat a couple times a day for me, and about halfway through, I don't know why, like my heart soars with the music, and maybe it's the horns, maybe it's the lyrics, maybe it's all of that, who knows, maybe it's serotonin and too much caffeine, but it doesn't matter. You can find their music in the link in the show notes or on Spotify for the playlist that is for the music from the show, but consider supporting them, especially now. Concerts are a thing that are hard to come by. Everything is crazy, and um, consider supporting the musicians that, that lend their music to the show. You are beloved and blessed, born beautiful, not broken. I'll talk with you next week.